Hello, friends. Today's guest on the podcast is William Woodward at where to Willie on Instagram. Will is a climber, a skier, and a professional travel photographer. Will left his engineering career in April 2015 and began a new life seeking out interesting stories and chasing great light. Will has worked with brands like Black Diamond, Gregory Pax, Backcountry.com, Yeti, Adobe, Facebook, Instagram, and many more. We talked about how Where to Willie got started and how Will thinks about balancing passion and playfulness with his work as a freelancer, about finding meaningful stories and doing work that matters. We talked about Will's routines that keep him feeling grounded on the road and some of his rules for life, shooting in film versus digital, his advice for photographers, and a lot more. As always, everything we talked about is linked in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com, including Instagram posts, books, videos, and a link to Will's website, which is definitely worth a look. Will and I are friends, but I hadn't really heard his story, so this was a really fun interview, and I think there are a lot of nuggets in this one. So, let's get to it. Please enjoy this conversation with William Woodward. There we go. So we're rolling. I think sound check. Everything looks good. Great. So I actually, I thought we could start with digging into how we got to know each other. Yeah. Um, and I actually don't think we, I don't know if we had met at the time, but kind of how um, I got to know you and, and maybe my first impression where I felt like, oh, this guy's a kindred spirit. This is back in fall 2015 and it was Smith season. I was climbing a lot with our mutual friend, Steve Rollins at the time. And it was a weekend, so we were going out to Smith, and Steve comes by my house to pick me up, and I get to meet Ruby. <laughs> I don't <laughs> nice. think I don't think you were even around at the time. I think you were traveling inter- internationally, so Steve was looking after Ruby. I got and, to spend the day with Ruby, uh, yeah, and I was like, this Will guy, he's got to be really cool. <laughs> so uh, tell me, uh, tell me about Ruby. It's it's funny that that's your introduction to me. Because I recently was reading a book and they were talking about, uh, it's a Malcolm Gladwell book. He's talking about thin slicing and he said, you can get to know somebody better with three minutes in their most personal space, be it their bedroom, dorm room, however, than you can in 30 minutes once a week for a year. Oh, wow. As far as like telling about what type of person a person is in however many seven different categories of personal characters yeah so people the, still don't know what ruby is that's gonna sound really so, funny so, so the fact oh right so so ruby ruby is a 1990 volkswagen vanagon uh she's been my home on wheels for the last four and a half years april of 2015 was my first foray into the van life hashtag van life as it has since known or since become known she's a beauty yeah she's ruby red hence her name she was given or sold to me as Ruby and the previous owner inherited the name Ruby from the owner before him. So she's been Ruby as, as long as she's been on four wheels, which I think is kind of cool and has a you know nice heritage to it. But yeah, so Steve would, I would leave my van a couple of places around the U.S. when I would travel internationally and, and Steve's house was definitely one of those easy 
people that I trusted to take care of her. And part of it was, hey, you know, drive her around, take her to work, take her to Smith on the weekend, let her see some nice views. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you, and you got a taste of probably who I was yeah. through that, which is really interesting. I think Ruby was my third or fourth Instagram post ever. No way. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, beautiful shot of Ruby. I was stoked. I was nice. inspired. Well, am I tagged in that photo? Can I go see that somewhere? If I go like all if the way back to the beginning of your feed? Yes. Does it still exist? Yes. Excellent. And if you're not tagged, I will fix that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll share photos of Ruby the Vanagon for folks um, in the show notes. So I was kind of looking, I was poking around your bio on your personal website. And one sentence that popped out at me right away and this is, I believe, as you're writing, it says, it isn't always a single defining moment that so drastically shapes a person that their entire future changes because of it. But that is how my life as an artist began. I'd love to hear about that. I'd love to hear about that, that defining moment where you kind of took the leap. Yeah. So actually, the defining moment that is referenced there is about a year and a half before the moment that actually happened to me or the moment that I experienced. And you were, for context, you were an engineer yeah. kind of working in the grind. And oh, then at some yeah. point we're, you're like, I'm going to try this photography. Cubicle farm. Yeah. Living at the time in Alabama. I guess it wasn't a cubicle farm, but it was an office with cubicles. And designing machines and overall what, anybody would consider a very successful first few years out of college. And the moment that I was referencing in that sentence is uh, my cousin was killed in a drunk driving car accident. Oh, wow. And it was <clears throat> a week before his 25th birthday. Then <clears throat> a year and a half later, a week before my 25th birthday, and it was obviously a lot of time leading up to this and thinking about it, but a year, a week before my 25th birthday uh, was my last day on the job, or the day before was my last day on the job, and the next day I had a backpack packed and had a one-way ticket to Mexico. Wow. And that sparked a you know, three-month journey that included Mexico, South America, New Zealand, Australia, Spain, Romania, and Ireland. Okay. And that was kind of my first foray into using a camera to document travels and try and tell a story. I started a blog, which is where Where To Willie came from. Everyone at home was saying, you know, where are you going? Where, you know, where are you headed to? Oh, cool. Okay. I was going to ask about the, <clears throat> where that name came from. So yeah. So, wheretowilly.com, blogspot. <laughs> <laughs> For those who have been around for a while, uh, that's how that started. What and is it now? Just wheretowilly.com. Okay. It, but it started out as a blogspot, like one of those standard yeah. Google blogspot. Free. Yeah. And it was, you know, pre-iPhone, pre-consistent like internet everywhere. So you'd have to, if I were going to try and update everyone in my life of I'm still alive and okay and doing this type of thing. The easiest way in my mind was to make a blog post because then my mom could share it with her friends and family. My dad could show it off to his buddies and I could send an email 
and everybody would know where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And it was the easiest way for me to be like, okay, cool. Here's what's going on in my life. And here's where I'm at and share a couple photos of travels along the way. That's cool. So if you go back really deep yeah. <laughs> into the, into the where to Willie blog, you'll find some really interesting musings about a 25 year olds first foray into traveling internationally and what that meant. Wow. And really just written for close friends and family. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I actually, I didn't ask that question with, with any knowledge of that. I was kind no. of expecting like a bad day in the cubicle where you're like, what the <clears throat> hell am I doing with my life? Yeah. Not a lot of people know that. Yeah. Thank, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So you kind of kicked things off with uh, living out of a backpack and traveling internationally. And um, that predated your, what you do now. Totally. Okay. So then what was the, what did the transition look like when you came back and tried to reintegrate into normal life? Yeah. So I came back from that trip with every intention of being back in a backpack on the road again as quickly as possible. Okay. I toyed around with the idea of doing freelance engineering. I had met a guy who and really quickly, sorry to interrupt. Oh, yeah. Okay. What was your engineering field? What did, what did that kind of look like? Okay. Oh, um, at the time I was doing machine design uh, for a small private company in, in Alabama, and we worked for the Department of Defense was kind of our main client. Okay. Yeah. So you're thinking about freelancing engineering? Yeah, just doing easy design stuff that I can kind of come in, whether it be you know 3D rendering or just helping out with you know small one-off design projects. Something that could pay the bills, but still give me enough time to go do the traveling that I wanted to do. Uh -huh. Whether that looked like taking a couple month contract or you know, doing project to project. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know much about freelance at the time. Even though if I wanted to be a freelance engineer, I just knew that I wanted more time than, okay. than what I was getting with a 50 hour a week, two week vacation type of job. Gotcha. And that went okay, but then circumstantially, I end up taking a full-time job with the intention of working for about a year, just committing some time to making money, and then being able to really get back to you know being out on the road again. And this is in Oregon at this point? So this would have been living in Alabama, took a three-month personal sabbatical, realizing that I want to be more on the road, coming back to Alabama, kind of packing up that life and moving to Illinois, okay. where my folks are from, where I'm from. Yeah. Then finding this job in Illinois that, like I said, was kind of intention of one year, commit the time, make some money, go back on the road. Right, and then you tried to leave. I did, yeah. So one year turned to three. Okay. <laughs> uh, met a group of guys who are still some of my closest friends and had a really great three-year tenure of the Rockford Ravens Rugby Club. Okay. Where I realized that I can put my body through a lot and you know, I'm still able to walk, so that's good. But towards the end of that, I was looking to be somewhere a little bit more inspiring than Illinois. Mm. I know a lot of people that really love it, and that's great, but some of the places that I had found in my travels through the years since that first, first trip international uh, really were doing a, a toll on the back of my mind of trying to draw me back to 
places with a little more geographical featured yeah were you, were you thinking about climbing <laughs> and about mountains at this no i mean point, or what did your international travels look like as far as like <coughs> what kind of adventurous stuff were you doing on that first trip i mean on the first trip i i was probably a pretty crappy traveler like, okay I, I wasn't <laughs> i don't think i was as meaningfully deep as i wanted to be i was interested in a okay. lot of deep things but i didn't know enough about any place that I was able to put any meaning back into that place or leave any meaningful amount of myself in any of those places. Hmm. I mean, it was, it was really pre, it was definitely pre Instagram. It was before this kind of constant influx of knowledge of all these places that we've never been. So I had a little globe in the back of my head that had Chichen Itza in Mexico and Machu Picchu in Peru and then the Opera House in Sydney and those were some places I knew that were intriguing enough to make me want to go there and then by the time I got to those places I had met enough people that had told me of or had taught me of all of these lesser known gems that are worth seeing in all of these places. And so by the time I got to Australia, it wasn't really so much about what country I was going to. It was about who I was going to meet and what happenstance type of things would come up along the way. Okay. So after leaving Australia, it was Spain, Romania, and Ireland. And those three countries all were kind of, oh, I know somebody there, or I've heard a cool thing about this place, so I'll do that. And not so much about having a specific spot in mind that I wanted to visit while I was there. Okay. And then when you're, I mean, you must have had kind of had some exposure to mountains or something geologically a little bit more inspiring. I mean, to be back in Illinois and be like, oh, there's something missing here. Right. I think for me, a, a big part of what was missing was just the challenge. Like it was really easy to be in Illinois. Oh, okay. Going to a job every day was pretty easy. Yeah. You know, Running the risk of sounding pompous, like doing an engineering job for me was pretty easy. Not that I couldn't have pushed it further and challenged myself, but with anything, it becomes comfortable. Yeah, it becomes it becomes second nature and becomes something that you can go do every day and not gain a lot from. Okay. So <clears throat> I had worked there now for going on three years and trying to find the next challenging thing. Over that time, I. I had gotten more into the idea of photography and I knew that I didn't want to take pictures of cornfields and barns in Chicago for the rest of my life. So is this something you're doing after work on the weekend? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If I can take a, you know, four day long weekend and travel somewhere that's a little more nuanced as far as the landscape is concerned, I was doing that. Okay. Took a trip out to California and did a road trip there. Took a trip maybe to Utah or maybe, no, actually it was, this is what it was. My little sister was going to school at Arizona State, so we drove across the country to get her car out there. So we drove from Illinois to Arizona via Colorado and New Mexico. And then on the way back, we went through Utah and Wyoming. So seeing all of those parts of the country, you know, and once you got east of Colorado, you're in, you know, Nebraska, Missouri, Illinois. Ohio, Indiana. It's like, okay, cool. There's something meaningful out West. Okay. So after that three years of the engineering job in Illinois, I was trying to leave that company 
and was asked to stay on, take a new position that also came with a relocation to Portland, Oregon. Got it. So upon getting to Oregon, I lucked into meeting our mutual friend, Steve, who then introduced me to climbing. Got it. Okay. So when you... So my my, my photography pre-Oregon was very landscape, very quote-unquote fine art. Not that I would say that my artwork at the time was sophisticated enough to be considered fine art, but that's what drew me to picking up a camera and sharing places. Okay. So you accept this, uh, this year out in Oregon with your job. At this point, are the wheels already spinning? Are you thinking about like... Are, are you going into this year in Oregon knowing that it's going to be this temporary thing and that you ultimately want to hit the road again? Or are you, how did that look for you? Yeah. I mean, I gave myself to the sales position. I definitely wanted to be good at it. Okay. And the problem with being good at sales is you're traveling more than someone who's maybe not so good at it. Yeah. And my, my territory was Oregon and Alaska. So I'd spent six or eight weeks a year between Anchorage and Fairbanks and Juneau. So getting a taste of what big mountains look like there, mm. getting a taste of you know what Oregon has as far as the Cascades and the coast, and then coming back to Portland being like, oh, do I really want to live in a city? Is this, mm. at the end of the day, I still have to come back to this job. And no matter how good at sales I get, I'll still have to put in a pretty consistent amount of hours a week. And I was getting to the point with photography where I realized that the weekend development and the weekend growth was not enough. It wasn't good enough. Okay. And it was either I'm going to really commit to it and try it or accept that it will always be a second tier hobby. Got it. So April, 2015, you get Ruby. I bought Ruby in October of 2014. Okay. So that tells you kind of where my mind was as far as, uh, you know, my commitment to the long term of that sales job. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm laughing because I just did the exact same thing. I bought this van in March and now we're December and I'm still at the same company, but I've kind of had this stewing in the back of my mind this whole time. Yeah. Preparing yeah, my exit. It, it, it gives you the opportunity for the exit. It gives you the more meaningful next step so april 1st 2015 i remember making a facebook post of you know quit my job moving into a van going out on the road okay so it's kind of this funny play on april fool's day everyone's like oh yeah sure sounds fun and then you know that is what happened and you've taught we were just at lunch before this and you a couple different times you've mentioned Wanting to find work or do work that's meaningful yeah. with your photography. And I know you'd said that the first year you intentionally put making money out of your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so what were you, what was your thinking kind of going into that year? And what were you maybe hoping to do as far as meaningful work with your photography? Yeah. So I guess I had this plan of a three-year plan. A, a plan to let myself do an experience life for a year and not necessarily make photography such a part of that that it becomes something that like engineering that I didn't want to keep doing every day Mm. 
So if I kept the money out of it, if I kept needing to get work out of it, I felt as though that the photography would be more real to what I cared about. And in doing that, then I could let my creativity steer the ship, so to say. Yeah. And figure out what it is that I cared about, what it is that I was passionate about, what it is that I wanted to try and do with using photography as an outlet for creativity and, and potentially work in the future. Gotcha. And so you, I was laughing about this earlier. I was like, to what extent did you have this three years actually planned out? And you're like, oh, I'm such an engineer. Yeah. Of, of course I had it planned out. So yeah, yeah, it, what was the three-year plan? Year one, learn about myself, learn about my photography. Year two, begin to make money. And then year three, develop a plan for maintaining that ability. Okay. So what that ended up looking like was year one saying yes to any and every opportunity to do something outside that I thought was interesting and bring my camera with to do it. And then year two, starting to push some of that work towards potential clients, try and find people that were doing interesting things in the outdoor community that I wanted to be a part of. And still saying yes to as many trips and opportunities as possible, but then also trying to figure out a way to make that sustainable and make money doing those things. Or at least at the time was more like covering the costs of traveling and not necessarily, you know, making a lot of money doing it. Yeah. Making it a sustainable lifestyle. Right. Then year three, which turned into like year three and three and a half and three and three quarters was <laughs> trying to figure out how to wait, how to make it long-term sustainable. Where are we at now? uh, I've been in the van for four and a half years. Okay. And all of this kind of, I'm all kind of counting my creative life as starting April of 15. Okay. So that was really the the tipping point of going from, I'll take a hike in Oregon and take a photo of a waterfall to, I want to work for a brand that allows me to do something interesting or meaningful or share a share a story that I think other people want to hear about. Yeah. So have you noticed that there's a theme there? Like what are the things that have really resonated with you? And, and now that you've had a lot of these experiences and you're successful now and you're having brands come to you and you have a little bit more latitude to decide what you want to do. Like what are the things that are calling to you now that give you a lot of life and, and that you feel are meaningful with your, with your craft? Yeah. It's a great question. Is it, is it still exploring? I think it's still, it's still something that I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's with, with the platform of being able to share stories, you in some sense always feel, or at least I feel compelled to do something substantial with that and not just, you know, sell more t-shirts for some company. Mm -hmm. You know, it's nice to have the opportunity to do projects that get people more interested in the outdoors or get people to try something new or get people to care about something that they didn't know about yet. Oh, cool. Do you have a, an example of a project that along the lines of that last thing that you mentioned, like a a cause that's been really fun to, to work with? I think that's probably something that I'm still working towards. I mean, the, the work that 
I generally do is more on the commercial side, which is selling products. So there are projects that I've done that have been, have had a deeper meaning. And I think part of what I've found is something that I'm capable of is getting people to question, is what I'm doing right now meaningful to me? Hmm. And letting people have the opportunity to say, if it's not, I don't have to know what the next thing is, but it's okay to try something new. Hmm. And, you know, I grew up in a really small farming community. You know, majority of my close friends are still farmers today. But some of them have seen, and some people that I've met along the way have seen, you know, me taking this huge transition, not necessarily knowing how or if it will work, and then saying, oh, because I saw you do that, or because I know of this transition, I'm willing to try something new, or I'm willing to go outside of my comfort zone, whether it's, you know, moving into a van and completely reinventing your career, or just, I can leave this job that I don't like oh, and go do something new. That is so cool. Yeah. And that's probably been some of the more impactful stories that I've heard from, from people along the way. Hmm. So in preparation for this, I was poking around on Instagram and one, one thing that I came across that was interesting, and this is a, a caption that you'd posted on a photo and you said, taking photos can both hinder and enhance our memory of a place or experience. I think I've experienced both. I was really interested to, with that to ask, as someone who's out there doing a lot of cool stuff all the time mm -hmm. and documenting it, that seems like it, it's always going to be a challenge. So how do you think about, how do you balance that? How do you balance capturing the cool thing that you're doing versus giving yourself space to really be present in it and experience it? Right. I think the way that I've done that is through the activities that I've chosen to pursue. Okay. While I'm physically climbing or while I'm physically skiing, that's the only thing I could be thinking about. Mm. Even if I have my camera with me, in those moments of activity and in those moments of pursuit, that is 100% where your mind is. Like you can't be in the backcountry skiing and not be 100% present. And you can't be halfway up a rock route or halfway up the side of a mountain and be thinking about, oh, should I take a picture of this? No, you're just like, you're there. <laughs> right. Your mind is only there. And there's not been any other activities that I've done that put me so much in the present as climbing and skiing. Mm. So while when I get to the belay, I might think about pulling out the camera during the pursuit, like during the actual action, I'm able to step back away from that and, and be fully what's right in front of me. Got it. So you've been living on the road basically for four and a half years. Yep. Uh, are there any kind of daily routines or habits that you've developed that have helped maybe provide some stability for yourself um, or supported your work? Um, anything that comes to mind? Yeah. I um, I try to every day meditate. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And I've recently started using the app Headspace, which yeah. so far has been really great for me. Okay. I need a little more hand-holding guidance going into it. And is that first thing in the morning? <clears throat> as soon as I wake up, okay, throw on at least a 10 minute meditation. And from there, I have to, I'm curious about that. Have you oh, noticed, yeah. what have you noticed with that? Anything at all? Like as far as 
is it, is it changing your experience day to day? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm new to it again. I did a really good job about a year ago, and I was able to be, when you have unlimited options of what you can be working on on any given day, it's really easy for your mind to be trying to work on all of those things at once. Mm. And I think that's the freelance predicament. That's the sole proprietor's dilemma is no one's there to tell you that this is valuable. No one, <laughs> no one's there to say this is what you should be prioritizing this week or this month or this year. Right. No one's going to tell you if you work on this now, in six months it'll turn into someone paying you for this type of job. So you're always, or at least I was, always in a hundred places at once of what's worth my time, what's a valuable, what's moving the needle forward for this business. And so the meditation kind of allowed me to sit with those thoughts, let them come and go and not be the only thing that I can think about. Hmm. It gave me the kind of clarity to focus my attention a little better. You still don't know whether or not it's the right thing to do, but at least you're <laughs> able to focus. Okay. And then, cool. uh, you, know, the, you know, life happens and my meditation practice didn't keep up as well. But now I'm taking the time to get back into it and it's only been a couple months. So cool. it's one of those things that, you know, it's like working out. If you do it once a week and you've been doing it for three weeks, I'm a little sore, but I don't really notice any difference. But right. if you do it every day and you're a couple months in, three, four months in, then all of a sudden it starts to take shape. Hmm. So I feel like I'm in the process of getting to the point where it's taking shape again. Okay. Uh, so so that's, that's routine one. Perfect. Uh, another thing is... Making coffee. Okay. It's one of my favorite things to do in the morning. What well, is my, it is probably my favorite thing to do. It definitely gets me out of bed. How do you make your coffee? Well, I kind of like coffee a lot. So, <laughs> so even though I live in a van, I have uh, an AeroPress, a pour over, a French press, and a mocha pot. <laughs> and obviously cowboy coffee. So five different five different coffee making methods in a very small space but how do you decide it's uh, it, i mean aeropress is my go-to super simple for one i have friends visiting then i'll french press because you can make a little bit more coffee hmm. uh, i like the mocha pot but it's a little bit more of an involved process and takes a little bit more to clean the pot out so that's kind of like special occasion coffee <laughs> okay and then the pour over that's a classic if i get a new bean i'll always do a pour over because i feel like pour overs have some of the best flavor. Okay. Maybe competitively to the AeroPress. Just wow. Kind of depends on depends on the type of bean and the type of roast. I feel like a Neanderthal with my own coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to act like a coffee snob. I try not to sound like a coffee snob, but sometimes it just hey, happens. It's amazing. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I, I would say the only other routines are running and going to the climbing gym. Okay. What does your running routine look like? put on some running shoes and see how <laughs> long mean, I can go. <laughs> are, you, uh, are you doing that every week, multiple times a week, every it, day? It, it really depends on what else I'm able to do physically. Like okay. if, if I'm able to be climbing often or if I'm able to be skiing often, then I'll probably run less. It's it's less about running and more about you know finding the easiest way to move my body. Got it. And that's the thing you can do anywhere, mm -hmm. anytime. Yeah. I had a couple bikes, but they both got stolen. So I gave up biking. Oh, <laughs> brutal. I mean... In the grand scheme of things, though, four and a half years in the van, like the most meaningfully detrimental losses are two bicycles. Like it's not that bad. Got it. So I'd love to ask about your process for finding work. I mean, at this point, 
from my perspective, a, a pretty impressive reputation and brands are starting to come to you. Um, are you still actively seeking work? And is that something you have to kind of constantly be mindful of and pursuing? Or um, what does that look like these yeah, days? It, it is definitely still a meaningful pursuit of work. As much as I would love to think that my work speaks for itself and that you know every company would be dying to work with me, it's just, it's unrealistic. Hmm. And I, I think there's not very many people in the world that can claim that type of status. Got it. That said, I am generally pretty conscious about the brands that I seek out to work for. They either have a message that I think is a good message for the outdoors, they make a product that is something that I would and or do already use in mm. my pursuits, or they are just fun people that I've gotten to know over the years. So they kind of have to fit at least a couple of categories of meaningfulness as far as me wanting to work with them. Okay. And you had mentioned earlier today when we were talking that you're, you've been able to have a potential project and then pitch a cool adventure that you already want to do. Um, how often does it work out that way? Like what percentage of the time are you able to say, Hey, I, I really want to go climb this mountain anyway. So while I'm doing that, let's see if this brand's able to, to collaborate. Right. Yeah. It's definitely, I, for a long time, a couple years would try and pitch every project or every trip that I was doing as a project. <laughs> okay. And some got picked up and some didn't. And most of them I did anyway. Okay. Uh, as far as ski trips, climbing stuff, anything. I filmed my buddy run across Iceland. Oh, I've got a note for that here. I'd love to come back to that. And not always my pursuits, but in some cases, other people's pursuits, being able to be a part of going on an adventure was always worth trying to talk about. And, you know, for as, as put together as brands seem, a lot of brands are looking for stories that they haven't thought of to tell. Mm. So it's not necessarily that I think my trips are so awesome. It's just I thought of it or someone that I know thought of it. And yeah. that's good enough. Okay. It's not that it's so unique or so different, but brands are just looking for stories to tell. Mm -hmm. I think I think nowadays, especially... You can't just put out a picture of your thing and expect someone to want to buy it. You can't just say, hey, here's this. You should want one. Well, let's get into that because, I mean, you have, you're an amazing photographer. I absolutely love your work and you've been, you're pretty successful, but you also have this engineering background. Mentally, you're very organized. And then you did this year of sales. So you're able to, you've, you've cultivated that skill set as well. So, um... Maybe my question is, when we were at lunch earlier, you said that, you know, for every photographer, I think, feel free to fact check, but for every photographer that makes it, there's 10 or 20 out there that are just as or even more talented or more honed in their craft, but they're missing these other components. Right. So maybe um, how have you been able to integrate those other skill sets and how important has that been? And then maybe another way to ask the question is, what advice would you have for a new artistic, enthusiastic photographer who hasn't thought about the business side. Right. Yeah, I definitely made up the 20 photographers per per one successful. So the, I'm, <laughs> no very, fact. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very good at making up statistics that sound about right. <laughs> <laughs> and I buy it, though. But but I def, it's definitely true, to some extent, whatever the numbers mean or whatever the numbers actually are, 
it's as much about the business of selling photography as it is about being a good photographer. Mm. They are equal, if not more important to be a good business person as it is to be a good photographer. Mm -hmm. You can be the best photographer in the world if you don't ever share your work because you care so much about it that you'll never put it out. If it's not perfect, you'll never get hired for anything. Yeah. If you put your work out there and try and be meaningful about it, people will eventually care. But if you can't write a contract, if you can't make an invoice, if you can't keep up with all of that back-end work, do the accounting for your business, then you'll never stay in business. Mm. If you don't go pioneer new work, if you don't go meet new companies that are potential clients, if you don't have conversations, you're not going to find new work, even if you were given work once. If you don't maintain those connections and send follow-up emails and thank yous and happy holidays and a dozen other ways to stay connected with people that you have or would like to work with, they're going to forget about you. Hmm. It's just there's enough opportunity out there with other photographers, with other creators that you have to put in the work of maintaining who you are in the industry. And that's clearly something you do really well. Is that something that you've just practiced and taught yourself or are there any resources that you've kind of looked to to work on these skill sets? Um, any books or anything that you'd recommend for someone who's, uh, you know, got the skills as a photographer but hasn't thought about the other stuff? Yeah, uh, business books, I mean... Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard was an early inspiration. Okay. And that was, you know, it's not necessarily a business book from the perspective of like how to be an entrepreneur or how to be a, you know, a, a single person creating a, a, a lifestyle of freelance work. But it was meaningful to me in that by being passionate and by working in a way that is meaningful to you, you'll find the people that it's also meaningful to. Hmm. You don't have to be meaningful to everybody. You don't have to be meaningful to 50%. If you're meaningful to 2% or 1% of people, that's still a lot of people. That's still a lot of people. <laughs> Even in a, a niche like climbing right. or skiing. Right. Yeah, and one thing that I've found over the years is for as much time as I spend on the business side of things, you still have to be meaningfully involved in the story that you're trying to tell. Okay. You can't expect to create meaningful images or tell meaningful stories if you're not willing to be a part of it or a part of a place or a part of a team or a part of a story. Hmm. You have to be there. So another thing I came across when I was kind of looking through your Instagram, I was just looking at a few random posts. This one's from, I believe, back in June this year. And it sounds like at the time you had hit a rut, you said something about feeling stuck and that you had, you know, for the first time in years, lost your desire to do the thing that once brought you so much joy. Mm. And in your first year, you know, you talk about this three-year plan that you had. It sounds like the first year you were really intentional about avoiding that. Like mm -hmm. you knew that might be a trap. Now that you've become more successful, um, yeah, tell me, tell me about that experience of hitting a rut and maybe what was it? How do you think about that and what has helped you break free of that when you've yeah. felt that? I remember this rut. I didn't realize it was as recent as June, uh, but that could just be when I was thinking about it. I could be wrong too. It's fine. About the timing. As much as making money at your passion sounds great, it inevitably turns your passion into work. Mm -hmm. 
And as much as I love the fact that I get to pick up a camera for work, there are days when it still feels like work. And it doesn't feel much different than going to work at any other job that you're not psyched about on any given day. And I found that what led me out of that and what was a meaningful change was to try and step back from making everything that I did a potential project and turning it to there's things that I'm going to do that are for me Hmm. and there's things that I do that are for work and having some level of distinction and not having it always be it's kind of always work was a really important step. I like that. It's okay to go do a project and take photos of it that you don't ever intend to sell. And it took me seeing that, it probably took me getting into this rut to say, hey, the choice of whether or not this is something that I want to pursue as work is always going to be mine. And it's okay to have some things that aren't work. And it's hard to do, especially when you're in charge of how much money you make or you're in charge of whether or not you get a new job that month or week. It's hard to say, oh, this doesn't need to be work. But I found that my biggest growths have always been in doing the things that are meaningful to me more so than they are doing things that are meaningful to work. Mm, Very cool. So I saw a photo that you had posted of a sailboat. I believe you were in Seattle. And there's a guy jumping off the front of the sailboat. And the caption, this is on Instagram again, and I'll link to this post because I think it's great. The caption just says, rule number one, always swim. Tell me about rule number one. (laughs) Well, I have a couple of rule number ones. (laughs) Okay. Rule number one for, rule number one being around water, always swim. There's yet to be a body of water that I've jumped into that I'm not psyched about afterwards. (laughs) So, yeah. So reading that, I'm thinking, okay, you know, that really speaks larger to like do the thing that sounds a little bit like a pain, a little bit uncomfortable, but that you know is going to be worth it after the fact. Yeah. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Rule rule number one of climbing, look good. (laughs) Rule number one of uh, skiing. Will, I have to interrupt again. Will is sitting here with a beautiful Hawaiian shirt, <laughs> a blue flowered shirt with uh, what, what kind of flowers? They're, they're pink. Some type of orchid, I would assume. It's pink a orchids. very classic Aloha shirt, which has over the years become a little bit of a calling card of mine uh, this summer. It's mid-December. So, <laughs> it's, it's festive. It's a holiday shirt. Uh, this summer, a group of friends and I did the Wonderland Trail which uh, circumnavigates Mount Rainier. Yeah, yeah. And I did the, the entire trip in an Aloha shirt and a pair of running shorts that had a flower pattern that I had found <laughs> at the store the day before we left. A different flower pattern? Oh, yeah, totally different. Definitely not matching. Which, the number of compliments that I got per day on, on my outfit made it worth it. There you go. But I would have done it had I not seen another person. It's just, it's a funny thing that I think is a great style for the outdoors. Just following rule number one. It's just following rule number one. You gotta look good. Okay, so we got bodies of water, we got climbing. Yeah. Uh, I guess for, for, for both pursuits, rule number one and two and three are the same. Rule number one, look good, skiing, climbing. Rule number two, don't fall, also skiing, climbing. And then rule number three, safety first. 
and then teamwork. <laughs> and I don't remember where I heard this. I feel like it was a friend of mine had told me this one time long ago, and I just kept it up. But yeah, rule number one: always swim. I guess it kind of goes to say you're never going to be disappointed with taking the plunge. You're never going to be disappointed with trying something new. You might decide that you don't want that or that you don't like it, but you're not going to be disappointed that you tried. Hmm. Like you might come out of the water and be like really cold and pissed and not psyched. But two days later, you're not going to look back and say, well, thank goodness I didn't jump in that, you know, really cool glacial lake up at the base of that mountain. You're going to look back and say, oh, it was really freaking cold. But wow, that was dope. <laughs> I'm still psyched, right? You're that. never going to say, oh, I wish I wouldn't have tried that new thing at work. Or I wish I wouldn't have, you know, reached out to this person and tried to say hello. Might not work out. You might find that you're just not into that, whatever. But you're never going to, at least in my experience, you're never going to look back and be bummed that you tried. Hmm. So I guess that's always swim. Always swim. So when I was pulling up stuff uh, around you, just kind of doing my homework, one article really stood out to me and was really interesting. And I just have a note here that says, world record Iceland. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about this trip to Iceland and, and how you were involved in this. Was it a Guinness world record? It was It was an attempt at a Guinness world record. You know, I really, I hate to say this, but I have not kept up with Tom enough to know whether or not Guinness has accepted it <laughs> as a world record. <laughs> I feel like I should know that, but I'm, I don't. And you, Tom, you, you were there for Tom, the I'm sorry. I need, I need to text you. <laughs> <laughs> when was this? This was summer, no, October of 2017. That January beforehand, I was on a trip to Patagonia and hiking the W circuit in Torres del Paine and randomly got into a conversation with three English guys okay. who were down in South America bicycling the length of South America. Oh, wow. And I was fascinated by their story. They grew up together, went to university together, and in some fashion decided that they were going to raise money for a type of cancer, or maybe it was Alzheimer's, that they had been affected by as individuals and okay. their families. And so they rode from Cusco, which is in Peru, all the way down to Ushaya, that's in southern tip of South America, flown all the way back up to the northern bit. This is, you know, timing-wise, they couldn't do it all in one stretch that, you know, the seasons were off for when they needed to start. So it was called Cusco to Cusco. They rode from Cusco all the way down to the southern bit, flew all the way to the northern bit, and then continued bicycling back to Cusco. So they effectively rode their bikes the entire length of South America. Wow. When I met them, they were taking a break from cycling to go on this, you know, pretty intense 20 or 30 mile hiking trip that they didn't have the gear for because they were on a cycling trip. So they had like borrowed backpacks and, you know, <laughs> one of the guys had a sack of potatoes. I mean, you know, more power to the English, but come on, like that can't be the most effective weight to calorie ratio food choice that you were able to find in South America. I hope they're already baked or cooked. <laughs> no, they weren't. They were raw potatoes. Like literally, I remember sitting in camp, they were boiling potatoes and I had some and they were great, but I never would think to carry raw potatoes yeah, on the trail. Not a first choice. No. 
to their rented equipment and but they were psyched they loved the fact that it was challenging and it was a different challenge than the challenge that they had been doing and even though they were super strong cyclists you know that doesn't mean that the same muscles are used when you're hiking so they were all just as worked as i was oh right which was great so we bonded over that and you know struck up a pretty close friendship and i still get to talk to those guys like i said earlier not quite as much as i would like to but tom and i stayed really close and maybe six months later he threw out the idea that he wanted to try and do another fundraiser uh, to raise money for a an organization in England that provided uh, relief to families whose children were going through some type of uh, cancer recovery. Okay. So his, his nephew uh, had passed away from this rare form of cancer. Hmm. And the, the company that we were then raising money for really helped his sister out. So we wanted to try and raise awareness for them and or he wanted to do that and asked if I would come along to help document the journey. Okay. And so he'd already cycled the length of South America. So the next thing obviously is to run across Iceland. (laughs) (laughs) How he came up with that, I I actually don't know. Or I don't remember. And it was, was it North to South? Yep. We started in the, the original intention was to run across the middle, kind of up over the hump uh, from the northernmost part to the southernmost part. Okay. And I know nothing about Iceland. And, is it is it kind of like a mound that's highest in the middle? Yeah, more or less. Okay, more or less. Uh, in doing some research on when we finally settled into the dates of the trip, we decided that actually going around the outside was significantly safer as far as roads still being intact. Mm. With the glacial runoff and the snow melt, the middle of the country doesn't really get a lot of traffic. Yeah, literally and figuratively. So we weren't sure that if we took off across the middle that the roads would still be there. And he's running, but you guys are in the truck. We had a support vehicle. Got it. The other thing about somehow Tom decided that we should do a Guinness record to bolster the... uh, The cause. the, the, The trip, yeah. And, you know, potentially expand the awareness of what we were doing. Okay. Which, you know, was definitely a good thing. But also we realized there are a lot of rules and regulations that come with trying to do a Guinness record. Mm. So we needed to have constant GPS monitoring. We needed to have a log of start and finish times and locations of every single day. Mm. We needed to have witnesses sporadically throughout the trip of seeing him doing what it is, what we were saying that he was doing. He's not riding on the tailgate. Right, he's not riding on the tailgate of the truck. (laughs) Right. So going across the middle quickly became not a feasible option. Okay. You know, there's not really consistent enough people. There's not really consistent enough cell signal. So, and the other thing is if we had tried to go across the middle and had to turn back, the timer would never restart. Okay. So even if you're backtracking, you're not able to basically restart once we turn the clock on. Got it. So any, any, so dead, any, end any, any dead end would have been right, wasted, wasted time. time. Got it. The other fun thing about Guinness World Records that I didn't know is even though no one had ever tried to run across Iceland in a specific amount of time, Guinness prescribed a minimum time okay. that was acceptable to be a record. Interesting. So even was, though, yeah, even though no one had done it, they said, if you do it in anything more than 12 days, we're not going to consider it a record. Got it. 
That's really interesting. So I was sitting here thinking that he was breaking someone's record, which I'm like, what are the, who else did that and why? Right. That makes sense though. I mean, it makes sense that you can't have someone meander over the course of six months and right. just because they're the only one that's done it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So someone. I wonder how they came up with that. Well, someone at Guinness had done research on other long land foot crossings. Okay. And kind of said, comparative to this person on this record, we're going to extrapolate that to how far it is across Iceland. Mm. Based on mileage elevation. Based on, not really based on that much, based on the fact that some other guy went on a long run. (laughs) (laughs) Which was part of our our sticking point of, this is going to be a big challenge. Because the run that they used as a comparison wasn't really that great of a comparison as far as physical challenge. Mm. I don't remember all the details now, but Tom's run, uh, I do believe, was was pretty significantly different and harder than what they based our 12 days timeline on. Got it. So you still don't know if it's actually an official I don't know if it, I mean, accepted record we, or not. So the only reason that it would not currently be is if there was something wrong with the paperwork or... Oh, okay. You know, if, so if his time was underneath... The time, beneath he, he did it in 10 and a half days. Uh, Do you know how far it was? 7,000, or sorry, 750 kilometers, like 400 and change miles. Okay. Over the course of 10 days. So it was... 40 plus miles a day. Yeah, it was It was somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of like a marathon and a half a day. Okay. For 10 days. Yeah. That's a lot of running. <laughs> and, and, and we were bootstrapped. We didn't have significant funding to huh. do this trip. So we were staying in tents every yeah. night. You know, yeah. it's October in Iceland. It's cold. You know, he's running sometimes in tights rain pants, a puffy and a rain jacket, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and we had, I think two or three pairs of shoes. We probably should have had, you know, five or six pairs of shoes of varying sizes for him because mm. by the time, by the time it was day seven, his feet had swollen to, you know, oh, one to wow. one and a half times its original size. Oh my gosh. So he was just hurting his feet by putting them in shoes every day. Yeah. So yeah, it was oh, I've never huge, huge that. learning experience from the the planning side of things, hmm. but also really inspiring to see someone you know get out of a sleeping bag and sleeping pad every night after you know five days of marathon and a half days, yeah, no breaks, you know, eating goo packets and energy bars, and we would <laughs> we would make a Nalgene full of oats because he it was carb heavy. Uh-huh. You know, he could shove a coffee packet and a half a tube of peanut butter and, you know, 600 milliliters of oats in a, in an algae. And that was, you know, a thousand calories or something. And you're just trying to get food in your belly at that point in time. Right. Without it being too heavy. So it's an amazing article. And I mean, some great photos that came out of this trip. I'll be sure to link to that article in the show notes over at thenuggetclimbing.com. Um, but the article is really interesting because you also, it's a, a story about your trip, but then you also have some great advice for traveling photographers. One thing that you say in there is don't forget to capture the in-between moments. It's easy to forget, sorry, it's easy to focus on the big picture, the grand landscapes, but the moments between make up the story. Yeah. So, how, yeah, how do you think about that? How do you think about um, capturing the moments and what does that look like for you on some of these trips? Yeah, I mean, I think I, str- I struggle with this. I know that I struggle with this. You as, started as a landscape as photographer, right? Yeah. yeah. That my, my focus was 
kind of the lack of people in places. It was about their original unintended beauty. Got um, it. And, and transferring or translating that to telling a personal story is still, is still challenging. Hmm. I do love now taking photos of people and telling their story of their interaction with their landscape or, or their nature. Tom drinking the leader of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, his, his battle with the environment and his, his struggle physically and mentally of being able to get up and do that every single day. Hmm. But it is still really easy to fall back into this great landscape style of photos. Like they make sense because they're beautiful. Like everybody looks at a great landscape and says, wow, that's really pretty. Like there's reasons that the national parks exist because they are surrounded by some unique landscape wonder that everybody can go to and say, whoa, that's really pretty. Mm-hmm. So that photo always makes sense. Right. But that photo doesn't really tell you a lot of a story. You know, it tells you a place, but the in-between moments, those times when, you know, Tom is pouring baking soda or baking powder on his feet to keep his feet dry because we can't keep, you know, dry socks yeah. dry fast enough using the heater of the car. Like those are the moments that tell you about what it was really like. Hmm. You see a photo of a tent in the Northern Lights and yeah, that's really freaking cool. And I'm glad that I took that photo. Oh, it's such a cool photo. <laughs> but, but at the same time, that doesn't really tell you a whole lot about what the trip was. Right. It's the the stuff that's that's a little more real, a little bit more raw, and it's a photo that doesn't itself ask to, to be taken, but when presented with the story, is maybe more meaningful even than just the landscape or just the really pretty mm-hmm. thing. I mean, logistically and and mentally, that seems tough too, because I mean, this kind of comes back to uh, a photo hindering or enhancing or enhancing your own experience, it seems like capturing the in-between moments, you just have to be on all the time. Sure. So it's not just that you're looking out for a beautiful, beautiful lighting or a beautiful landscape, but now you're, you know, everyone else is trying to eat and you still have to have the camera ready and be ready to capture all those moments. So does that, I imagine that that also maybe makes it harder to find that balance of being present versus being there to document. I think that's probably why I hold so much value in those activities that I do that aren't for photos Mm. because I know that when I'm on and when I'm like in work mode Mm. that I'll look back and not have the same type of memory, the same type of appreciation of a trip if I'm solely there to document than if I'm just there to be. Going into a trip like this one with Tom, you're just accepting ahead of time. Like I'm just going to be on, I'm there to document and that's what this is about. And then Maybe afterwards I'm going to go climb. Right. Okay. Yeah. And being okay with those two things being separate has has been something that, you know, I still have to work on. And not to say that every time that I bring out my camera that I'm not present because that's not true, but accepting that there will be times that it's work. You're there to do a job. You have to be very cognizant of everything that's going on around you because the whole thing is the story. And especially in a trip like that. You know, when you go out for a commercial job, there's going to be times when you, cool, we're shooting this type of thing in this scene. Let's go do it. You do it for an hour or two hours, and then you break, go to the next scene, set up the next type of shots. Mm -hmm. So there is, you know, those highs and lows. But 
when you're trying to tell the story of an entire trip, yeah, you're pretty much signing up to be on the whole time. Got it. So you also do a lot of writing. I, I, used, at, I used to. You used to? <laughs> not, I feel like I'm not doing such a good job at that anymore. Okay. Well, I was just poking around on your website and I saw um, you put out a lot of really helpful photography tips, tutorials on things like Lightroom and other software. You do gear reviews. Um, how did that come about? Was that just part of the hustle, trying to make this into a lifestyle? Or I mean, you're, you're a really good writer. So oh, thank I, you. Do you enjoy that? How did that kind of come about? I do. And when I get into storytelling mode, I think I can do it fairly well. And it stems back to that, you know, that first trip where it really wasn't about the photos. It was about talking about a place. It was about talking about an experience. And the photos were kind of secondhand Mm. to the story. And some time along that journey, the photos became the primary objective and my writing of the story became secondary. Okay. The gear reviews, the tutorials, that's kind of a funny backstory. When I first got into photography, I am self-taught and I just read a ton of articles. It was kind of in the early days of YouTube, but my learning style was definitely more of be able to read a paragraph, try it, reread the paragraph, try it again, be working on something, go back and look at some notes. So I wanted to be able to share that knowledge for people who learned like me, Hmm. who weren't necessarily, I'll watch a YouTube tutorial and then go do it. Okay. So it was definitely like this me being able to give back my knowledge style to people that were interested in photography. Okay. That's really cool. So that was, that's perfect. Cause that was actually going to be my next question was like, what are some of the resources that you look to now to kind of stay current? Um, or what did you look to when you were first getting into this? And I imagine, I wonder if that stuff's, I mean, is that stuff even still relevant because this stuff changes so rapidly? Yeah, I would say that you shouldn't read anything that I read when I was getting into this. <laughs> I look back, I look back at my early photos, and it's slightly embarrassed, but it's fine. It's you know the progression of art. I think always will dictate that you look back at your previous work and aren't necessarily enthralled by it, especially mm-hmm. as you're going through the learning process. You know, now I can say that my work from last year is still pretty similar to what I would do this year. Okay. But, uh, what about the tutorials and stuff that you've written? Do you think that stuff's still current for people? I would need to reread them. <laughs> but I mean, no, probably okay. probably not, honestly, just for the fact that the tools have changed yeah. so much. Yeah. Th- those tutorials probably are, if they're even a year old, and I'm sure they're more than that, you know, the tools that we've got since then have changed. Mm. Lightroom is still relatively the same, but all of the sliders are different. Mm. I don't really use Photoshop anymore, even though I have tutorials that are very in-depth in Photoshop. So I would not say that necessarily those tutorials are the best place for my tutorials anyway, are the best place for people to start out. Do you have any photographers or blogs or anything like that that you look to for keeping up on kind of what's what's now, what's current? Any resources you'd recommend for people? I wish I did, but I honestly now... The thing that I spend the most time on is, you know, being a part of the activity, okay. being a part of the thing that I'm trying to tell the story about, Got that it. I'm trying to document. I find for me that the more 
I am a climber, the more I am a skier, the more I am an outdoors person, the more I'm able to, at least for my style of art, accurately portray those things Hmm. and tell more deep and meaningful versions of them. So it's less about the software and the tool being the camera and more about the true depth of involvement. You know, we go to, I, I go to film festivals pretty regularly. One of the most interesting stories was this guy who paraglowed, paraglided, paraglowed, (laughs) (laughs) paraglided. I don't know. I don't know. Probably paraglided, but I have no idea. Anyway, he was in a paraglider and went up over an 8,000 meter peak. Wow. And the whole thing was filmed on a GoPro. And so, you know, it's not like he was out there using a $80,000 red camera with the best lenses and Mm. the best monitors and the best audio equipment but the story was really meaningful and it was Mm. deep and he was so involved that you were enthralled as the viewer and so that really reset the tone of like don't pay too much attention to the gear don't pay too much attention to the editing software don't pay too much attention to all of these little technical things that are easy to think about and easy to quote unquote improve by spending more money but do think about how are you telling the most meaningful version of whatever story you're trying to tell? Hmm. And so being more involved, being closer. And that's, that's a funny thing. One of my like personal mottos and personal things that I try to think about every time I pick up the camera is get closer. Hmm. Get closer to, whether it be physically, like be closer to the person that you're trying to tell the story about, to get closer to the story, understand it better, understand the product if you're shooting product understand it better because it will be more meaningful Hmm. i like that get closer so what does your climbing look like these days i think when we had met you had either just started or you were kind of about to get started with climbing and yeah now you climb a lot i I would say that it's my most spent time outside of photography (laughs) awesome so Uh, yeah what does that look like for you now and what have you got what maybe would have been some meaningful recent climbs? Do you have any that you're that you've got on your radar that you're excited about coming up? Yeah, I so I, I started climbing through our mutual friend Steve, mm-hmm. who brought me out to Smith and threw me on a top rope and me and my tennis shoes and borrowed harness. That sounds terrible. Ba- barely Rock. wiggled my way more than a body length up the wall <laughs> on, on what would now be considered a relatively easy route. Um, yeah, but nothing's easy. But nothing's easy. It's Smith Rock. Well, and yeah, and the great for me, the great thing about climbing is is it doesn't matter what grade you're climbing. To some extent, you're always there's always something that you can push yourself on. Yeah, you can be sitting next to a grizzled super hard climber and you're both putting out maximum effort Mm -hmm. at your grade Mm -hmm. and that's awesome the fact that you can push that deep no matter how good you get and that's been kind of one of the cool things about climbing for me is i don't ever expect to climb super hard like i climb five tens and i'm really happy with that and i'm more about the exploratory nature of climbing versus necessarily trying the hardest I possibly can on one specific climb. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what climbing looks like for me. I mean, I started really late in the game. I'm, you know, four years into climbing now. So 
relatively new in the grand scheme of what it means to be a climber. And I would say that probably just in the last couple of years have I felt like I've known, or maybe even just the last year, I feel like I've known enough to consider myself a climber, which is kind of a funny thing, even though I've been climbing for four years, to, to finally say, yes, I do this, and yes, I know this, or I understand this, or at least a segment of it. But for me, it's it's definitely a mental space that I need. It's that single-tracked version of life where there is you and the rope and the gear and the other person and some rock or some snow or some ice and you're just moving up and that simplicity and that that it doesn't need to be more than that is what draws me back out there every time cool when we were at lunch you were mentioning that you really at this point like to spend summers up in washington you're talking about doing some of the multis up there um are you have you been climbing up in the alpine up near there and do you have any favorite areas that you've been climbing or places that you're excited to go back to? I mean, I, I consistently go back to Washington Pass. Yeah. Back in 2015, I took a class with a, a really close friend of mine. It was Alpine Technical Leadership and something to do with glaciers. So we spent six days on Mount Baker doing crevasse rescue and glacial guiding. And then we spent six days in Washington Pass doing rock and rope work mm. and that was <clears throat> kind of my first real introduction to the leadership aspects of climbing and not just uh, before that i had climbed in the gym and at smith mm -hmm. and you know getting to the the scale of you know climbing a glaciated summit or doing a multi-pitch climb where you're bringing and placing your own trad gear like that was eye-opening for me it wasn't just that I tried really hard for 30 meters. It was, I could go out and spend four days trying to get to the top of something. Hmm. And that there would be meaningful climbing along the way just was an added bonus. But then it kind of over time shifted to that climbing was the reason to go spend those four days. Oh, cool. And are, are you still doing both? Do you still do any sport climbing at Smith? I come to, climbing? I, I, I'll, I'll climb at Smith every uh, forever. Oh, cool. Smith is... Every time I walk into that place, I get a smile on my face. I look at that winding river and see the rocks, and it's home for climbing for me. It, it always will be. And I'll always come back out here and probably get scared on some really thin stuff because I'm more of a trad climber now. <laughs> so the little thin facey stuff of Smith is a little bit worrisome. I mean, it's fine. I don't mind taking falls, but it's funny. It's just such a different style from what I've actually progressed into than where I started. And then what about Washington Pass? Do you have plans to go back up there this summer? And do you have any objectives or routes kind of on your radar? Well, yeah, I mean... Or the Bugaboos. You've you spent some time up there in the last couple of years. Yeah, the, the the Bugs was the first rock climbing area that I ever walked into. Oh, wow. And that's I cool. I walked in there alone in October and there's no other climbers there because that's not season. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw these Were I saw, you just optimistic or I was just in the air I was just in the area and I was like, oh, oh okay. might as well swing in and see what it's all about. Oh cool. So I just walked up there. Yeah. Which, which was awesome. I mean, I went there this year with a team and when we climbed uh and we, we camped at Appleby and, and climbed uh, uh the northeast ridge of Bugaboo Spire and it was just a, a lovely day in the mountains. Hmm. But that trip I was there in Appleby campground and I was the only person in the campground. Like this year we went and there was probably 
40 other tents. Oh, wow. So it's a totally different experience. But you're sitting there surrounded by these giant, giant walls of rock and seeing crack after crack after crack and climb after climb after climb just surrounding you. It was definitely inspiring then. And, I, you know, it's a place that I had been thinking about getting back to ever since. Uh, we had intended on going up the Becky Chenard route, um, but due to weather considerations, we ended up having to, to reevaluate our objective and, like I said, did, did the northeast ridge of, of Bugaboo Spire. Uh, that was officially a f- work-slash-fun trip. I was shooting a project, um, so we did need to climb something. Otherwise, <laughs> 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 otherwise, it wouldn't have been a very very good story. Uh, but it was, it was a great route. Uh, as far as Washington objectives, I would like to go up Mount Stewart. Okay. Um, there's a something like a 22 pitch five nine. Yeah. On Mount Stewart, that sounds really great. It's been on my list forever. Well, I think we'll both be up there this summer. Hey, I think we will. <laughs> awesome. Let's go do it. Okay. I would love that. Great. Anything else in like the enchantments area that you got your eye on? Or? Um, I did a little bit up there this summer. We did what is that outer space? That super classic five nine. Yeah, on Snow Creek Wall. Yeah, really fun. I'd like to go That's do that. Amazing. I would love to go do that one again, just because it is just beautiful climbing, and. I don't know. I hate to put out too many routes that I want to do again, hoping that, you know, many people hear this. <laughs> as much as I want a lot of climbers to hear about this, I don't necessarily want a lot of climbers out where I want to climb. <laughs> as sad as that it is, is, it's tough as sad with as that, that is to that, say. That's already a pretty busy route, so yeah. it's tough with that one. It is funny, the, the differences, you know, in what I do for work, which is, you know, hopefully try and promote people being outside, but what I personally necessarily <laughs> want, which is those solo times, those alone times outside. Mm. That's kind of a hard juxtaposition to accept. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm happy to get more people outside, and I really do appreciate it when I see more people enjoying the outdoors. At the same time, I do find meaningfulness in solace, in mm. in those alone times in nature so that just means i have to be better at going further Hmm. i like that do you have a favorite piece of gear either camera gear or travel gear anything like that that you've gotten in the last few months or the last year well i did get a new piece of gear recently that was going to be very meaningful okay it is not necessarily meaningful in any type of climbing skiing or work monetization way but i bought a new film camera oh cool and just in the last year two years i've been getting into or back into film photography i definitely started out fully digital like my first camera was a digital camera i've really only ever shot digital so it's not like i have like this root in film photography but every time i pick up a film camera there is something that you can't recreate in a digital camera or in a digital image that comes out of film. And so I'm really excited about this new film camera. Oh, interesting. That's so yeah. cool. Is that just visually or is that is there like an experiential component you think that uh, I'm sh- I'm sure it's it there's definitely a color that as many people have tried to recreate in digital is just not the same huh. between film and digital. Maybe it's just how you shoot. Maybe it's how you take photos or what you see creatively when you're holding a film camera that feels a little bit more like the images I remember from growing up. So they feel more homey. Hmm. They could still be of landscapes or of 
pretty things or of adventures, but they have this more, they have a feel that they're not for anything beyond the memory. Hmm. And that's something that I haven't found really in digital. Very cool. Any new uh, tips or tricks that you've learned in the last few years that have made an impact? And again, either with photography or maybe little things you've discovered living on the road that make life easier living out of the van. Does anything come to mind? Yeah. uh, One of the biggest things that I've learned in four and a half years is it's okay to ask for help. Oh, cool. And you don't, even though I'm solo in the van, I'm never really by myself. Like there's always people and more often than not, people want to help other people, whether it be <laughs> us sitting outside Steve and Nikki's house and them letting us hang out and drink a bunch of coffee and chat for three <laughs> hours this morning, or we're recording in the van parked <laughs> on the street right now outside of Steve Rollins' house, or or you know letting you use their laundry machine, or mm. you know just come in and dry some of your clothes after a long ski day, like yeah, people want to help especially they want to help their friends. It's not really in our culture anymore to ask for help the way we used to, Hmm. but you make meaningful connections when you're willing to ask for help. Love that. I'd love to ask, how old are you now? I'm putting you on the spot. 34. 34. Let's go back to Will at age 20. That's concerning. Is there any advice you'd have for yourself (laughs) at age 20? At age 20. So age 20, I was still in college. I was living in DeKalb, Illinois, which was 15 minutes down the road from where I grew up and studying engineering. And school was good. It was fun. It was, I had a good group of people and I enjoyed the challenge of studying and being in class. So I wouldn't say like work harder or, you know, take more art classes or anything because it was all part of the process. It, mm. you know, now is only now because of the stuff that we've gone through. So I would guess I would just say, you know, stay the course. Hmm. Life comes at you pretty quick and you don't really know which thing is meaningful until someday it is meaningful. Hmm. So, so be a part of it every day, like experience every day, except that some days are going to be really great and some days are going to be really, really bad, but they're all part of the course. So let's go to age, I don't know, it would have been 29 or 30. So April 1st, 2000, was it 14, 15? 15. Um, Any advice that you'd have for yourself then when you're just breaking out and getting into the van and and hitting the road? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Make sure that coolant stays in the engine. (laughs) (laughs) So after after 85, 80, yeah, 1985, uh, Volkswagen Vanagens, went from air cooled to water cooled ah. and there was a period of time where I thought that I knew more than some of the dials and lights and warnings <laughs> of the van's system. Ruby's 87. She's a, she's a, she's 90. A 90. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and blown head gasket later in the middle Ooh. of nowhere, Canada. Oh my I gosh. wish I would have known to, you know, take the time, <laughs> you know, take the time to, <laughs> You're not, nothing is going to happen so fast that if you stop and take the time that it's going to pass you by. Hmm. It's always worth taking the time. That's I like that. It's a much deeper lesson there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but it all stemmed from make sure there's, a, make sure there's always cool in the engine. 
What is something that you are excited about right now? It could be an upcoming trip. It could be a new idea that you've been kicking around or new possibilities for the future. Yeah. Um, a couple things. Me and some friends are planning a trip to New Zealand, and we've all been a couple of times now. So it's nice to go to a place that you're really excited about, but that you don't feel like you have to accomplish anything at. Mm. It'll be really nice to be over there and not feel like we have to hit the top 10 sites of the South Island of New Zealand. Mm, cool. Like we can, we can dive a little deeper. We can, you know, go spend some time with maybe a conservation agency or with people doing something meaningful in, uh, you know, indigenous cultures and get to tell hopefully more meaningful stories because of that and not feel like we're skipping out on the reason that the South Island of New Zealand is such a tourist destination. Oh, cool. Are, are you going to have an itinerary with that? Or are you just going to show up? Eventually, and... eventually we will. We don't yet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But not so fixed that... You have to give yourself time to let things happen. Mm. And if you try to pack things too deep into a trip, you're going to miss out on the opportunities that are going to be the ones you remember. Cool. What is something that you feel especially grateful for lately? So another one of those daily routines that I used to be better at that I'm trying to bring back in is uh, having three gratitudes, you know, writing down three gratitudes per day. Um, today, I'll come up with this on the spot. Today I'm grateful for good burritos. <laughs> those were such good burritos. <laughs> I'm grateful for uh, good friends who ask me interesting questions. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be creative and create things and tell stories and that there's people out there who care. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Is that something that you write down every day? I should. <laughs> okay. Well, I should, when you're, when I you're should, in the group, I should be more diligent. About when you're it. in the groove with your practice, yeah. um, what does that look like? Do you is is that something you start the day with, or is that like a reflection at the end of the day, or just whenever you get to it? Yeah, I guess ideally it would be at the set time every day, but for me, day to day can vary quite a bit. So yeah, if I get to do my meditation in the morning, then that's probably when the gratitudes come. Okay. But oftentimes they also come at the end of the day when I look back and say, oh, this was a really nice thing that happened. I need to remember that. Yeah. Do you do you journal? Do you keep a journal of any kind? Again, I was better at it <laughs> currently. There's no, and there's, there's no right yeah, or wrong no. answer. I'm uh, just really curious. I, I do. I do really. your lifestyle. I find that, you know, over the last maybe year, two years, that... The intention of writing has gone away a little bit. Okay. And that's something that I would like to dedicate more time to. But it is a, you know, it's a habit that you have to build. So sometimes I do a better job of maintaining and, and building that habit than others. And right now I'm in one of those lulls of mm -hmm. not feeling particularly inspired to do that. Do you think that comes from working in a field where you spend so much time telling stories, telling other people's stories? Does that fill some of that? It probably does, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that. 
but I would say that I, it may even have more to do with when I'm doing things that I find deeply meaningful than I have more to say. Okay. I'm happy to be a part of telling stories that other people find meaningful, but then I probably don't have as much to say about it. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Well, cool. What is, uh, what's next for where to Willie? You mentioned this New Zealand trip. Yeah. Yeah. yeah what else you got coming up? And, uh, this will probably air sometime in early February. We're, we're recording in uh, late December right now. Yeah. But, so yeah. So coming up, skipping January, uh, New Zealand and Japan are on the potential list for February, March. I will most likely be skiing in Utah. Okay. Uh, right now we are my friend and I are talking about trying to get to the North Pole in April. Oh, cool! Yeah, he's a he's a he's a he's a polar guide, so he's been to both the North and South Pole. Okay. And this year, there is an opportunity to go tell a story about um, a blind man who will be the first blind man to ever ski to the North Pole. Oh, wow! And my friend will be his guide, and we're you know, putting together a. You know, potential opportunity for me to come along and photograph and document the journey. Right on. So that would be amazing if that comes through. And then another friend and coworker is looking to uh, climb Denali. Okay. So those are kind of the bigger ticket items in the next handful of months. Nice. And then this summer we're going to climb Mount. And this Stewart. summer we're going to go up Stewart and <laughs> probably do a few other silly things in the mountains in Washington. Perfect. There's a bunch of routes on uh, Snow Creek Wall. There's several more I'd like to climb. So Sweet. Maybe one of those too. I intend on spending a good portion of the winter bouldering and actually trying to get stronger. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. Me too. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, pretty much everywhere at Where to Willie. Uh, W-I-L-L-I-E, like Willie Nelson, which is where, <laughs> I, where I got that spelling. Uh, and your website? Wheretowillie.com. Okay. Great. And then you have a personal page as well? <laughs> yeah. Is, yes. is that one you put out there to share? Is I that... do, yeah. No, I, it's it's public. Uh, my not-so-work-oriented Instagram profile is Willie in the Wild. Um, it's a little bit goofier. It's a little bit more just phone photos and behind-the-scenes and life kind of as it's happening versus the more curated version that that you get on where to willie love it so i'll wrap up with a quote and this is a quote that you'd written i pulled this off the bio on your website and this uh, i really like this line it just stood out to me you wrote there's always great light to chase just around the next corner and i want to be here and there and everywhere to capture that fleeting moment to share with the world I've really enjoyed following your work over the last few years. Thank you. Um, thanks for chasing the light and sharing it with us. Right on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Will. Thank you. Like we do it.